When great Kublai Khan appears, you will make your obeisance to him, so that he may look kindly upon you and spare your worthless lives. Pray then, what am I supposed to do, sir? Cow tow. Kneel upon the ground and touch your forehead upon the floor. I shall do no such thing. Kublai Khan is the mightiest man the world has ever seen. Not to pay him homage will cost you your head. Well, if it breaks my back, then he can take all of me. So why waste time on small items? Welcome to Time Streams. I'm Nathan. And I'm Juliet. And in this episode, we talk about the final three episodes of the serial Marco Polo, which is also sometimes called A Journey to Cathay. So, Juliet, how have you been since the last time we've recorded? You know, hanging in there, trying not to catch COVID-19 by quarantining as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. Also, bonus, I totally, like, binged Hamilton multiple times yesterday on Disney+, Plus. so... Okay. It was awesome. But I'm hanging in there. No pet emergencies. Everybody's safe. So I feel like I have to like preface things now with that because I had so much happen at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. So that's good. I'm glad the cats are doing well. They're doing well. And I, I did a personal thing. I did my first two 10K runs this past week on Monday and Friday mornings. Mm. I was very proud of myself considering I don't, I, I'm not a runner. I only started that 5K training back in March and that started from basically nothing. Mm. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, I, <laughs> I remember running. Something <laughs> I used to do. <laughs> Although mine was less about distance and more about time. Like you like run for 20 minutes basically. And so like, okay. as I was doing it, I was naturally going further just because I was building up in dirt, you know, like your ability to keep going instead of like alternating, walking, running, you know, like all that it increases and improves. Oh no, I do that too, but mine is like focused on a distance and my speed improves slowly as I build up that endurance. Because mm-hmm. for that entire 10 kilometers, I walked for a total of 90 seconds out of an hour and five minutes. That was nice. it. Uh, it was 30 seconds for water every two and a half kilometers. Very cool. Thank you. 
So, uh, yeah, I mean, on my end of things, this week I took the week off just because my work is weird in the sense that we used to have a floating holiday that we could just take whenever we felt like, but they started pegging it to the 4th of July. And in some years that makes sense. Like if the 4th falls on a Thursday, well, okay, we get the Thursday off and then we have to come back in on Friday. I mean, it's kind of goofy. And so they would force the floating holiday into Friday and everybody had to take it then. But for some reason, it's just kind of stuck that way. And now it's like, so this year, the 4th falls on Saturday. So it's like, okay, we would normally take the 4th of July off, you know, on the Friday before then because it falls on a Saturday. But -hmm. then they're also pegging the, they peg the floating holiday to the Thursday beforehand. So we get this big weekend, which I mean, it's fine, but I'd rather have my day that I can take whenever I want because I never have enough days in the year to take when I want. So I'd rather have that. But yeah, because of that, though, there's only three days in the week. So it was an easy week to take off where I only have to use three days to get a whole week off. That's pretty nice. Yeah, yeah. So I've been doing that, trying to catch up on some stuff. I mean, nothing too terribly crazy. I think I might have mentioned on the last one that I was trying to get my daughter to ride her bike without training wheels, and she finally succeeded on that. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I was really happy, and she did not fall off one time. Rock on. Yeah, I was, you know, because I was expecting because with my other kid, It was hard because she was falling when we took the training wheels off, although she was a little bit younger, too. And so I was worried about her falling and then not wanting to get back on and all that kind of stuff. But no, she was great. She has fallen since then one time, but that's because she was being dumb and trying to do tricks. Ah. Right. (laughs) So it's kind of like, don't do that. But now she's got this huge bruise on her shoulder because she (laughs) fell and hit her shoulder. So, yeah. But anyway, you know. I once had, like, the skin on, like, half my face taken off from a bike riding accident. So, you know, it's it's par for the course. It's the price you pay for trying to be cool. Right, exactly. <laughs> Mine was, like, so where I lived in Florida, there were no sidewalks or anything. And so mine was, there was this hill, and at the bottom of the hill, there was, like, where, like, when the rain would come, like, some sand would wash down at the bottom of the road. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going really fast going down the hill and there is a r- side road that went off like at that point where like you're at the bottom of the hill, there's a bunch of this loose sand that's just kind of collected on the road and there's a side road you can take off. So I tried turning onto that side road and what happened was the sand, I didn't have the tires didn't get enough grip on the sand. So my tire turned to the right, but I was still going forward. Oh. And once I got off the sand where the tires started gripping again, Obviously, I skidded out and fell on my right side. And yeah, it took all the skin off my right knee and the right side of my face. Oh, my gosh. uh, Yeah, it was. (laughs) I had this huge scab that just basically covered the right side of my face and my right knee. And so, yeah, it was pretty awful. I mean, I had other bike riding accidents, but that's the one I remember. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Why? (laughs) Like seven or eight, you know, like that's a pretty intense memory right there. Wow. Yeah. So, anyway, but we're not talking about bike riding or <laughs> <laughs> running. So yeah, we're talking about Marco Polo. You know, we already went through the first four episodes. This is the one where Susan discovers the universe of the four gods and the TARDIS, right? <laughs> Don't make me start singing. I will. <laughs> and they get transported back to ancient China. <laughs> Tamahome. <laughs> Miyaka. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> All right, so, Juliet, what what happened last time? Okay, so last time we started off with our 
travelers coming out of the TARDIS into like mountains and snow and seeing a giant footprint that I thought was going to be a Yeti. I thought it was so exciting. And then Ian just bursts my bubble telling me, oh no, it's just a regular boot print. Snow just melted. So um, as they search the nearby mountain passes uh, and Doctor is obviously suffering some, from some altitude sickness, they come across the Mongols. Thanks to costuming, it was very obvious that these are Mongols. Mm -hmm. And we discover a dude named Marco Polo. And I'm like, oh, hey, look, that's kind of cool. So Marco Polo helps, you know, helps them out, grab, you know, he's gonna, because the doctor is very, very sick. And that we learn about how Marco Polo is going on the trip to visit Kublai Khan. And he's got a, a warlord, Tagana, who is the warlord. He's like a dude for a guy named No Guy, which is a very weird name for me. I don't know. Every time that they say that, I just get this weird mental, like, anime evil person in my head. <laughs> no Guy. No. And so Tagana's with them, and he's supposed to be, like, coming with Marco Polo, and there's going to be a truce and happiness, and, of course, we know that's not going to happen. Right. And we so... Need, we need drama. Right! I mean, what? otherwise, this is going to be some really boring seven episodes. Right. So Marco Polo gathers up our group, takes them back. We find, we find a lovely little woman named Ping Cho, who is about Susan's age, maybe a little younger. And I say this based on Susan's apparent age, because I have no clue how old she really is. Mm. And we find out Ping Cho is supposed to be married to um, a 75-year-old dude once they get where they're going, which is she's really not happy about. Mm. And they talk about the doctor's caravan, the TARDIS. And they mention that it flies. Oh, dear. Because how else does it get up there? It doesn't have wheels. Where did it come from? Oh, it flies. Well, now, of course, Marco Polo wants to take this and give it to the con. Mm -hmm. And I can't blame him because even if you can't get into it, the idea of a carriage that flies and made it up to the top of a mountain without wheels or anything is kind of cool. And it looks completely different from anything else they've ever seen. Mm -hmm. So they decided that they're all going to travel uh, because obviously our travelers can't go anywhere without the TARDIS. And the TARDIS is a bit broken. Again, <laughs> always the TARDIS is broken. So as they're traveling, they have to cross a desert and Tagana goes off to meet with some shady dude about getting some poison to poison the water in the caravan, which never comes up again. <laughs> this is like watching The Room with Tommy Wiseau. And yes, the tests are back. I definitely have breast cancer. Never mentioned again in that movie, ever. <laughs> so that's what this poison kind of felt like for me because mm. I, was, I was thinking about the recap when you were like, remember, you're going to do the recap. I'm like, oh, crap. And I get to the point of, part about the poison. I'm like, does this ever come back up? Nope. Nope. It never came back up. So Tagana is gonna, was going to poison everybody. Doesn't poison everybody. What he really wants to do is take the TARDIS to No Guy. And we know that, ta we know that Tagana's a bad dude because everything about him says bad dude. I can't even see him moving on screen because this is a reconstruction. I only see still images. And I know he's a bad dude. Right. He's yes. got the quintessential bad guy voice. I can hear smarm dripping out of him. Yeah, I did a little looking up on him, and yeah, he usually plays bad. I mean, that, that's he was cast a lot in that kind of thing. It makes sense. When you've got the voice and the look, you just roll with it. Mm. So the doctor is still not doing well. He's recovered from altitude sickness, but at some point in the journey, he starts to get really, really sick. They're only going along because they're hoping they can fix the TARDIS and sneak back in and get out of there, even though Marco Polo supposedly has a key to the TARDIS, which we know that can't be opened by anybody who's not like the doctor or Susan without destroying everything. So they're in the, now we're in the desert trying to cross a desert and this doesn't go well because suddenly Tagana has slashed all of their water skins. Whoops. So now we have one water skin to survive until we get to this oasis type area. It's like a way station, I assume. And we're hoping to get there before we all die. 
And Tagana goes on ahead and he does this really weird thing where he just like takes a drink and dumps out all the water that's waiting. And he's like, here's your water, Marco Polo. I'm like, wow, you really are a bad dude. (laughs) You know, I expected him at this point to poison the water from the Oasis because then actually the poison would make some sense. But no, 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 we don't we don't ever get to hear about it again. But luckily, during this night, the doctor was allowed, they, Marco Polo allowed the doctor and Susan to go inside the TARDIS to get some rest because he's so not doing well. Well, while they're in there, the inside of the TARDIS gathers some condensation by morning and suddenly they have water. I don't want to think about what's in this water knowing where that TARDIS has been and what's all over those panels. <laughs> but I guess beggars can't be choosers. Marco Polo freaks out thinking that they've been hiding the fact that they have water this whole time. And Ian has to bust out some science and be like, no, here's how this works. It's condensation. Woo. So then they all get some water. They survive. They make it to the Oasis. They find out, oh, crap, there's no water here either. Must have been bandits. At this point, Barbara's looking like, I don't think this was bandits. I think the sandstorm happens next. Does the sandstorm happen next in the big events? Actually happened before. Oh, crap. Well, wait, let me go back to the sandstorm because this was terrifying. I've never been in a sandstorm. I don't know what they sound like, but this thing sounded like jackals, like cackling or hyenas or something on the wind. It was terrifying. It was so loud. I could barely hear some of the dialogue. Susan and Ping Cho are out and they get caught in this. And Susan wants to run back. Ping Cho has been through sandstorm. She's, this is not her first sandstorm. She's like, no, we're just going to weather right here. We'll be fine. Tagana has also gone out to do nefarious things because that's what Tagana does in a sandstorm, I guess. Ping Cho and Susan here. I wasn't sure who it was. Apparently they thought it was Ian yelling Susan's name, which occurred to me later that people just start yelling names a lot in the, this arc. Like <laughs> Ian, Ian, Susan, Susan. When they're in the cave, Barbara. We'll get to that later. So sandstorm comes, Marco Polo ends. Tagana brings them back. Susan and Pinkcho back to the caravan. Marco was like, what were you doing? I was just out enjoying the night air. Right. So that was the sandstorm. Then we get to the oasis where they find out there is still no water. Oops. Oh, gosh. What happens next? Help me out. Give me a hint. Oh, no, no, no. They, they, they got water at the oasis. Okay. That's right. But not all the water. Tagana thought that they would die before they reached it. But because the doctor found the condensation, that's how they were able to get enough water to make it all the way. So after that... That was the end of that episode, wasn't that? And then we got to, like, the, the 500 Eyes episode. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Okay. So they make it, and they make it to a way station. And Tagano's very surprised, obviously, that they didn't die. Mm-hmm. King Cho totally tells a really awesome story about Aladdin, which I thought was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And fantastic storytelling that you gave some great background on. Like, you, told, you said that she did it all in, like, one take, and everybody mm-hmm. was applauding. Yeah, the applauding was supposedly, gen- or at least from accounts, was genuine. She's got a fantastic storytelling voice, so that was cool. Mm-hmm. Well, during this, Tagana told... By the way, Barbara's been trying to get Ian's attention and be like, hey, something is up. Tagana is up to something. And Ian keeps shutting her down to the point where, hey, no, talk to me later. I got to listen to a story being told. Barbara's not pleased. So when Barbara sees Tagana start to slip out during this story, she decides she's going to follow him. And Tagana goes out into this, this cave, which is called the Cave of 500 Eyes. And it's called that for good reason. It is not a place I want to be. And he's t- they're talking about how no guy is assembling his army and he's marching. And Tagana's like, okay, so you got to attack the caravan. We got to kill everybody because we got to get this cool other caravan, the TARDIS, to no guy. Well, Barbara overhears part of this in the dark. 
kind of crazy. But then she also gets found because they're like, did you bring a woman down here with you? And Tagana's like, I didn't bring anyone down here with me. So we all know Barbara's now in trouble. Next thing we see, Barbara's all like tied up and gagged. Oops. The others finally realize Barbara's missing. And they're like, how could she be so stupid? And I'm like, guys, she really did try to tell you. So the doctor and Ian and every, and Susan and Ping Cho, they're all going to go hunt for her. And Ping Cho, I believe, is the one that says, I think she was talking about the cave. She seemed really interested in it. And so they go and they find the cave and they go in. And Ping Cho finds Barbara's hanky that she dropped on the cave floor in like a passageway. And that's when they all start shouting Barbara's name. Good Lord, everybody shouts so many names. And then Susan like sees, I can't tell if they were paintings that they looked like sculptures of faces and masks on the wall. And it could just be that I have no depth perception and can't tell anything. Yeah, I mean, what I get from that is that it was like a painting, but it also made use of some of like the rock as the doctor talks about how like the quartz on the eyes is brought out to make the eyes shiny. Okay. Well, inside of this, because there aren't shiny eyes, there are actual eyes looking at them. And Susan screams and that woman can scream. So then they're able to rescue Barbara because they discover the room, but nobody else is there, just Barbara. And Tagana decides, oh crap, I got to figure out something else because that woman followed me. She knows I'm up to something. So let's start planting some, he doesn't even plant seeds. He plants full grown redwoods at this point of doubt. And so he tells Marco that Susan is like poisoning Ping Cho's mind and that the doctor has an extra key into the TARDIS, which actually is true. (laughs) So he wasn't wrong about that. And then Barbara's like, well, I was only there and only caught because I was following Tagana and he's doing bad things. And Marco's like, nope, I don't believe you. So he, uh, Marco ends up splitting up Ping Cho and Susan says, y'all can't be friends anymore. No more sleepovers for you two. And why do we keep trying to break into the TARDIS when we know people are going to catch us? I swear we tried to break into it like five different times the doctor and everybody but they do manage to go in and the doctor is seen like leaving the TARDIS and Marco Polo catches him and like takes his key but I don't think Marco Polo understands about the whole TARDIS and key thing and I can't blame him because who would believe anything like that it's hard enough to believe the TARDIS flies so anyway by now Marco Polo has basically imprisoned all of our travelers like seriously imprisoned them keeps threatening them with horrible things if they keep trying to escape has seized the TARDIS in the name of the Khan, and now we're continuing to travel. And we were in a forest, and we got attacked. No, we haven't been attacked yet. We're waiting for a signal to attack. And we find out, as Ian comes out, he, uh, he's looking at the guard, and he finds out, oh my god, the guard is dead. There's like a knife in him. And I think that's where we stop. So yes, Marco Polo. He's got fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's another movie I love. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. You know The Princess Bride, right? Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah. Okay. But, uh... <laughs> well, see, the funny thing about Marco Polo is that everything that people know about him comes from the book that he wrote, which people say is at least somewhat fictional, for sure, whether or not he ever actually got to China. And the problem is, it was copied a whole bunch of times. Nobody knows what the original was like. And, like, all the different versions that survived to today are different. So there's, like, all sorts of problems. There's, first of all, he didn't write it himself. He was dictating it to somebody. And then there's the fact that it was copied. And it seems like the copyists all thought, like, this would be cool if we did this to it and just changed (laughs) it. It's already a fictionalized account, Mm -hmm. regardless of how much truth was in his original version. 
so it's just kind of funny to like you know <laughs> to sync it up with things that are actual fictional like stories within stories like the princess bride uh, <laughs> you know, right? or something along those lines and then with doctor who it's like a story about marco polo's story so you know it's like why not yeah storyception but uh yeah we come up to episode five rider from shang 2 so yeah we pick up with ian touching the guard and he falls over Akomet, which is the name of the guy that Tagana met in the Cave of 500 Eyes, is like waiting in the woods and saying that when Tagana lights a torch, that's going to be their signal. And when Ian gets the others out of the tent and shows them the dead guard, they're like... Oh, don't forget the doctor first asks, did you kill him? Right, yeah. It's <laughs> the first thing he thinks of Ian. <laughs> Good job, Chesterton, showing initiative, you know? <laughs> So yeah, they look at that and then they realize that the bandits are probably going to attack soon. So they're probably not going to be able to have the time to get Marco to give him the key, get away and all that that they were originally planning to do. So they decide to warn him. Oh, and Tagana is seen, he has this horse in his hand. He just like drops it. Mm -hmm. Totally trying not to make a big deal out of it. Right. Yeah. Because when Ian gets him and Marco comes out, Tagana's just like, what's going on here? I don't, you know, (laughs) I don't have anything. (laughs) And so, yeah, Tagana's also mad that Ian is out, but they're warning about the bandits. Tagana's saying, like, oh, there's no bandits. What are you guys talking about? But Marco starts handing out swords, and the doctor at first doesn't want to take one, and Marco has a great line where he says, if you're half as aggressive with this as you are with your tongue, doctor, we can't lose. That was a great line. (laughs) It's so true. And then the next thing that, like, really blew my mind was that the doctor suggests, let's just put everyone in the TARDIS and leave. Right? Right. (laughs) So I'm like, would he really do that? I mean, he knows Marco Polo is a historical figure. So it seemed like a a thing. But of course, also, he's always convinced that he can actually, like, steer the TARDIS. So maybe he just convinced himself that, oh, yeah, I'll just take him to Peking or something. Because, of course, it's worked that way so well. Right. So Tagana's actually being clever here because he keeps talking about how there are no bandits and Tagana's assuming that they're going to, the bandits are going to listen to him. And so if he doesn't light the torch, they're never going to come. Right. So it's an easy way of discrediting Ian and the doctor is to just be like, yeah, there are no bandits. And Ian comes up with the idea of frightening them by putting bamboo on the fire because as a science teacher, he knows that. (laughs) Science! (laughs) That's right. (laughs) We get more Ian science about the bamboo expanding and then with the air trapped inside and then it pops. And the writers are all like, there's, there's our educational part for this episode. <laughs> right. But the bandits are getting anxious because Tagana hasn't lit the torch. And so they're saying, if it gets up to when the moon's about to rise, then we're just going to attack. And instead of going in stealthily, like Tagana said, we're just going to like, you know, go in there whooping and making noise. Doesn't one of them be like, I wonder if he fell asleep. And then they start ragging on Tagana's <laughs> age. They're like, oh, he's old. He's not as young as we are. And then there's a fantastic still image of one of them, I'm guessing, licking his blade. He's like licking his sword. Like, yeah, taste this cold steel. Mm-hmm. Well, they're bandits, so, you know, how do you show that they're these wicked people other than having somebody lick their sword? I mean, I guess you had to throw that image in there. (laughs) Right. 
Well, come on. I mean, you see that all the time in all sorts of things, you know, movies, shows, anime. I desperately want to see somebody end up cutting their own tongue doing right. that because I'm just waiting. <laughs> well, usually when somebody licks their sword, they're not licking the sharp end, right? They're licking like the flat part. Dude, I put a notebook in a bag the other day and managed to paper cut my own palm on a plastic sheet protector. How come <laughs> these, these people are licking swords? <laughs> Fair point. So yeah, Marco and Ian are talking, and Ian admits that, okay, yeah, we were going to use you as a hostage. Yeah, there's a time and place for honesty, and that wasn't it. Uh, right. It's like, yeah, but it's all, it's all behind us now. We're, we're going to fight bandits together. <laughs> and so, yeah, they talk again about how, you know, Ian's like, the TARDIS is really important to us, and Marco's like, well, it's really important to me, too. But then the bandits attack... Akomet is like, oh, so the warlord is awake, and then Tagana stabs him to make sure he doesn't say anything else. Mm-hmm. And then the bamboo starts exploding, and they run away. Yeah, that was the fastest attack I have seen in a while. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're superstitious, right? They're bandits. It's like the old Batman thing of he says criminals are a superstitious and cowardly lot. So if I dress <laughs> up as a bat, I'll terrify them. Oh, good lord. <laughs> So because they helped out and everything, Marco sort of semantically says, okay, well, I no longer have the TARDIS by official decree. I'm just taking it for me. Because that (laughs) makes so much difference. I guess the only difference is that if they tried to get into the TARDIS when it was under official decree, he said like the penalty was death. So basically he's telling them now if they try to sneak in, they won't get killed for it. I guess that's the only improvement. And he's like, can you promise me you won't try to sneak into it or escape again? And not a single one of them is like, crickets? Yeah, nope. But yeah, and so he's going to let Susan and Ping Cho sleep in the same room again. But the change that he's going to make now is that he and the TARDIS will be guarded day and night. Marco and the TARDIS. So that way they can't get into his room and steal his keys. And Marco hides the key. Right. He hides the key. So afterwards, they're all, they're talking, you know, the the TARDIS crew and the doctor's like, Takano watching the fire. That's really suspicious because that's like a menial task. That's like something you just have like one of the guards do or whatever. And so they start suspecting, oh, and because he heard Akomet talking to Takana, he's like, I think the bandit knew him. I'm surprised Barbara hasn't just like thrown her hands in the air at this point. (laughs) Well, she's the one that brings up that Akomet was at the Cave of 500 Eyes. Right. So then they're starting to put it together and they realize that Tagana must have been the reason, you know, that they were, like, he was the one that was working with the bandits. And they're like, but why? And the doctor's like, oh, he's after my ship. And Ian's like, no, I don't think so. It's got to be something else. So they're still not sure the why. There's a lot of stuff. This has all been going on since before you showed up, Doctor. Your ship just happens to be icing on the cupcake. Mm Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, Ling Tao arrives, and he's a courier for the con, and apparently these guys can ride 300 miles in a day because they change horses every three miles. Oh, yeah, that was crazy. He's also, like, the only honest-looking dude I've seen so far. Right. <laughs> yeah. And when Ping Cho goes to tell Marco that the guy is here, she sees him putting the keys into his journal. Worst hiding place ever. Right. No one will ever look there. The thing that you're always, you like, you're always writing in, you always got with you. And he asks her, he's like, don't, you have to promise me you're not going to tell them where it's at. And she says, I promise. Yep. 
So they get the message they have to go directly to Shang Tu. And so instead of following the road with the caravans, Marco says that they'll send on all their stuff with a trade caravan and they're going to ride directly to Shang Tu on horseback. So they get to the final way station, the place where they're going to get the horses and then ride on directly. And the TARDIS has been put in the stable, which offends the doctor. It's actually my exact statement. The doctor sounds offended that the TARDIS was placed in the stables. <laughs> Wang Lo is the name of the guy that like runs the way station. And people have made some snide comments about that name. But uh... Oh gosh, I hadn't even thought about it. <laughs> he had no idea what it was. And so he just like put it in the stable. And, oh, then we have a cute scene where Susan and Ping Cho are looking at fish together. Mm-hmm. And they're comparing the fish to different people in the group. Yeah. I, I was wondering how Ian and Marco would feel about that. <laughs> but yeah, then Susan really steps in it and says, like, oh, that one looks like it has a wedding veil. It must be you, Ping Cho. No. Yeah. And Ping Cho is like, you know, <laughs> I don't really want to get married. And that's when they talk again, because, like, Ping Cho is talking about missing home. And then Susan's telling her that her home is really far away. It's as far away as a star in the sky. And Ping Cho's like, can you get there from Venice? And she's like, no, (laughs) we're never going to get home. And Ping Cho says, well, I saw where the key is, but I promised that I wouldn't tell anyone about it. And Susan says, well, then if you promise, we're not going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. And so then we get this crazy new character that I don't know how much of an Indiana Jones fan you are. Oh no, is this monkey on the shoulder guy? Yes. <gasps> and I don't know if Steven Spielberg saw the story or if someone in like the writer or somebody, the director, oh wait a minute, he was the director, never mind. <laughs> somebody saw Marco Polo because it is so similar to the look and appearance of the guy in Raiders of the Lost Ark that has the monkey on his shoulder. You know, I hadn't even thought about it. I, th- I thought he looked familiar to me, but I couldn't place why, and that's why. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. He's a thin, shifty-looking guy with the beard, he's got an eye patch, and he's got a monkey on his shoulder. I mean, he's got a fantastic beard, too. That thing is seriously <laughs> pointy. Yes. So, apparently, the monkey was very difficult to work with and was peeing everywhere. (laughs) And also ran up in the top of the sets and they couldn't get it down. Like, (laughs) there was all sorts of problems with that monkey. Yeah, everyone who's been interviewed about this story, like, talks about the monkey. Made that much of an impression, obviously. exactly. They might not remember much about it, but they remember the monkey. Wow. Uh, So yeah, uh, Tagana's talking to this guy who's named Kuju. Okay. He's never actually called that uh, by name on the show. It's just in the credits. He's Kuju. Okay. And uh, he s- says like he needs the, well, he calls it a warlord's tomb, but he's talking about the TARDIS. He wants it sent to Karakorum instead of to Shang-2. And Kuju says he can do it if he can, if Tagana will pay him in gold and Tagana agrees. And so they get that all set up. And then we cut to Ping Cho telling Marco that it's dinner time. And he leaves, and she's still in the room, so she goes over and grabs the TARDIS key, because he just said she couldn't tell anyone where it was. It doesn't mean she can't grab it herself. She's not lying. (laughs) That's right. So she gives it to Susan, and Susan promises that she'll say goodbye before she leaves. And this is where I feel like I want to understand better, because I think we're missing something, because I don't know why... Because the next time we see them, it's night. 
Mm-hmm. And apparently Susan hasn't said goodbye to Ping Cho. And I'm like, if they're sharing a room together, why didn't she just say goodbye to Ping Cho when the others wanted to get together and go to the Tardos? Right. But in any event, they're sneaking into the stables to get to the Tardos, but there's the guard on the Tardos. Mm-hmm. And so then Ian does the drunk act. Like, this is such a trope. I knew it was going to happen this way. <laughs> Ian pretends that he's drunk and he wants to share the wine with the guard. The guard's like, yeah. Yeah, he's like, hey, buddy, you want some of this? this is good stuff. And then he hits him on the back of the head when the guy is drinking. <laughs> but then suddenly Susan apparently realizes that, oh, I never said goodbye to Ping Cho. So then she rushes off to say goodbye to Ping Cho. Uh, why? Uh, right. <laughs> But the rest of them get into the TARDIS, and I guess they didn't notice until they got in that Susan wasn't with them, which also seems kind of like, again, I want to see it, because this is one of the scenes where I feel like the fact that we can't see it, it seems really goofy. And maybe if we saw it, we'd think it seems really goofy, too, but I don't know if somehow if we saw how it played out, it would make more sense. But then when she's coming back to the TARDIS, Tagana's walking around, and so she hides... And the doctor, when they notice that Susan isn't in the TARDIS, I thought that was great. He yells, Great Olympus. <laughs> yes. Of all the weird exclamations. I wish they did that more with the idea that the doctor goes to different times and places, like that he just picks up like weird expressions from different places. But usually he talks like a British guy. You know, like he doesn't have like any weird expressions like that. I'd love that they, that they did more of that. But yeah, and as Susan's sneaking into the TARDIS, Tagana grabs her and she screams and that's our cliffhanger. Yep. And episode six is Mighty Kublai Khan. Mm. So Ian comes out of the TARDIS and Ian asks Tagana to let Susan go because he's like, hey, you don't like us. We want to leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just Makes just perfect let us sense. Go. Yeah, right, exactly. He doesn't know that Tagana wants to give it to no guy. Although, since none of them knows that it's bigger on the inside than the outside, I still wonder what Marco and Tagana think. I mean, sure, a flying caravan is pretty impressive, but if you could only stick, like, four people in there, like, four soldiers in there, how much of a military advantage does that really give you? Right. I mean, I guess some sort of, like, assassin squad or something, you could get them behind enemy lines or something, but it's not, like, (laughs) it's not that big of a deal have to be a lot larger to like provide a real advantage but oh well now of course we know because you could fit a whole army in there then <laughs> it is significant but they don't know that exactly but yeah tagana says no he wants everybody to come out or he's gonna kill susan so they come out and then marco comes at the same time again yep so marco tells the doctor to give him the key and he does that and then marco wants tagana to let susan go but tagana resists at first He's like, no, let's just kill them all. (laughs) This is the time. So it sounds like he has to force him to let Susan go, because it sounds like there's a struggle or something. It does. And Marco asks Ian how he got the key, and so Ping Cho's about to say, like, she says something like, Mr. Marco, and then Ian just butts in and is like, no, I took it. I searched your room when you were out. Yep. And that's how I found it. Totally protecting Ping Cho. Mm Mm-hmm. And Marco's basically like, well, since we're going to separate from the TARDIS in the morning anyway, you won't see it again until it's in the Khan's palace, and so it's not going to be an issue anymore. And so then they ride on to an inn, and the doctor is apparently having a really bad time with the horseback riding. Yeah, he is not built for this. (laughs) Right. 
Because they're all talking about how much pain he's in and everything. And when we see him later, it's kind of apparent. Like, he's hobbling like I was after my very first 5K a year ago. Mm. I couldn't walk. I just wanted to die. Mm-hmm. There's a cute scene where Barbara's like, Ian, you gotta talk to Marco. And Ian's like, I've already been talking to Marco. And then when Marco shows up, she's like, Marco, Ian wants to talk to you and runs off. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Yeah. So this is when Ian reveals to Marco that on top of being a a flying machine, it is also a time machine. And that's the reason why him taking them to Venice isn't going to help because they're from hundreds of years in the future. I love the fact that it's Ian who was the hardest to convince, even after the TARDIS had already traveled somewhere, Mm. that he is now trying to convince somebody else. Yep. And Marco's basically like, this is a step too far. He's like, I've seen weird, crazy stuff. He talked before about he saw Buddhist monks levitating cups and he's seen flea bills. And now he's seen flying fish. I've seen coal. Right. He's seen stones that burn (laughs) all this different stuff. And he's like, so I can totally believe in a flying box, but a time machine, you know, like something that can move right into yesterday or tomorrow is like that. No, that's, that's too much. And when Ian's pressing the point, Marco's like, uh, well, where did you find the key, Ian? Yeah. And Ian's like, uh, in your room? <laughs> he's like, yeah, but where? And Ian can't tell him. And so he's like, right, you lied to protect Ping Cho. I know you're capable of lying. That's where I get stuck. I got stuck. I'm like, really? Everybody's capable of lying, Marco. Why <laughs> does it surprise you that Ian is also capable of lying? Why? Why are you so disappointed by this? Everybody lies. Well, I think what he's just showing is like, you're not always honest. So when you're telling me something like this, I'm not sure you're honest with this either. So that's how they end that. And then Ping Cho leaves in the middle of the night. She's decided that she's going back to Samarkand where she's from. Uh, She must be like really sheltered or something. I mean, I realize that she's the daughter of some rich official or something, but it's just like, I'm thinking of that and I'm like, My God, girl. I mean, like, (laughs) you're trying to go like a thousand miles back to your home and with, you know, you think you're just going to pay some stranger. It just seems like really... Some stranger with an eye patch and a shoulder monkey. Well, she didn't know that when she left. But yeah, I mean, that's even worse. So yeah, I mean, everybody notices the next day that she's not there. But Susan thinks that if she left, then she's trying to get back home. And so Ian offers to go look for her. Mm Mm-hmm. Then we cut back to the way station and Ping Cho arrives there. Oh, well, before that happens, Kuju shows up and he claims to have like the official requisition for the TARDIS. And so Wang Lo's like, fine, take it. And then when Ping Cho sees him, she's like, oh, are you part of a caravan? And he says, oh, yeah, I'm part of a caravan. She's like, could you take me with you if you're going away from Shang Tu? And he says, oh, yeah, 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 we're going. And give me your money now. Give me all the money now. Right. I mean, come on. Even his voice sounds slimy. I know. (laughs) She's like, oh, sure. Here, here's my money. But yeah, then she realizes when he never comes back that she gave away all her money and she's down. That's nowhere to go. But then even the monkey was laughing at her. Right. Yes. The monkey was laughing. Oh, yeah. And for for people listening to this who haven't seen the pictures, it's like one of those little spider monkey. It's not like a big monkey, so it just sits on his shoulder. And so, yeah, when Ian shows up, he finds Ping Cho, and then from talking with her and Wang Lo, they figure out it's the same guy that stole her money. 
is the guy that took the TARDIS. Mm -hmm. Because then the actual caravan guy comes up and is like, here, I have the orders to take Marco Polo, you know, all the stuff. And then Wang Lo's like, oh, no. So they realize it was stolen. And then we cut back to another inn where Marco and the rest of them are resting after the end of that day. And then Tagana's trying to convince Marco that he shouldn't trust Ian and that why would he go back looking for Ping Cho? He's probably really just trying to get the TARDIS. And when he brings up the fact that all of them are against Ping Cho's marriage, he's like, see, there's no reason why Ian would go to get her. Oh, yeah. he gri- Marco then grills everybody on this. First of all, Barbara, are you opposed to this? And she's trying to be diplomatic. And then finally, she's like, of course I am. Of course I'm opposed to it. And then he asks everybody else. and They're like, yeah, we're all opposed to it. I mean, really, no one wants poor Ping Cho. And then Barbara's totally giving Tagana and Marco side-eyed this entire time. I love the still image they chose because that's exactly how I felt. Yeah. I mean, my problem here is that no one brings up to him, hey, even though we're opposed to the marriage, we don't want her wandering around the countryside by herself because that is really, really dumb and she could get killed really easily. I think that's just a given. I'm actually more surprised that nobody worried about the fact that maybe Ian Ian was going to hook up with Ping Cho and take her off and marry her instead. Mm. Like, they don't even consider that, which is good for them. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And also, though, Barbara, I think, should have been a little bit smarter about, like, just understanding that in this time period, this is just the way things are. But not saying, oh, yeah, we're completely opposed to you. Like, of course, Marco is not going to react well to that. When have they listened to anything she said this entire arc? (laughs) (laughs) She's like, they're not even going to hear me. It's cool. Yeah. Well, maybe. So then Marco lets Tagana go. Of course, Tagana just wants to make sure that Ian doesn't get the TARDIS back. Right. And so meanwhile, at the way station, Ian and Ping Cho are talking. And they work out that if the guy wasn't going to Shang 2 or away from Shang 2... There's another major road going to Karakoram, which was the old capital of the Mongol Empire, because they were nomadic people, and so it was just basically like a place where they would pitch their tents to have big meetings or whatever. So the road's still there, but there shouldn't be anybody there right now, but that must be where it's going. And then the rest of them arrive at the Khan's palace, and this is so good. Because the doctor is just like hobbling along and before the con appears, there's an official there and he's telling everyone, all right, when the con appears, you all have to bow with your heads touching the ground. You must kowtow. Right, kowtow. So that he may look kindly upon you and spare your worthless lives. I love this doctor was like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> right. He's like, uh, oh God, what is the, what is the line he gives? Because the guy says that, uh, you know, like, he, he might take the doctor's head if he doesn't kowtow. And the doctor says, if he breaks my back, he can take all of me, so why waste time on small items? Right. <laughs> so, yeah, when the con arrives, everybody's getting down kowtowing, and the doctor's, you know, having a hard time. He's just sort of kneeling on the ground, it looks like, from the pictures, and not really bent, put his head off the ground. And the con asks him why he's not bowing, and he says that his back is broken. <laughs> oh, and by the way, you have to mention that the con comes out hobbling and leaning yeah. on a stick, too. And I was wondering what was wrong with him. It's explained in the next episode. Right. Yeah, he has gout. Yep. But yeah, I mean, that's part of the fun of this, because the thing is, people think of these cons, these Mongols, they think of Genghis Khan, big warrior guy. But Kublai Khan was, yeah, he had an army and he conquered some stuff and whatever, but he was more like, he had this huge empire now that he had inherited, 
And it was more about just running the thing. And so he was like really clever about integrating cultures and religious freedoms and things like that. But he was not like the big, powerful, strong warlock. He wasn't riding out into battle doing things directly. You know, he, he had basically inherited an empire. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's supposed to be funny when you expect to see this big warrior and then you just see this old man hobbling out. <laughs> So the Khan welcomes the people from the TARDIS. He asks for Tagana, and Marco explains that he's going to be coming later. And the Khan's worried because no guy is at Karakorum, which, of course, tells us why the TARDIS is going to Karakorum. Mm-hmm. And they're going to go to the Winter Palace in Peking because looking at the map, it's further south. So I guess that's just to be, it's a little more protected. The doctor says that he won't get on another horse. And so the Khan offers to let him ride with him. And so then they both walk off like arm in arm supporting each other. Hey, I guess when you're old and you have similar conditions, y'all are just like, oh, we're best friends now. Yeah, that's right. Can we be besties? All right. <laughs> so I like that. So yeah, this is the, do- you know, we were talking uh, earlier about them pairing the characters. So this is the doctor and the Khan are sort of set up as the pair, the reflections of each other. And so, yeah, that's fun. And so, yeah, then we go to Ian and Ping Cho. They're sneaking through the woods and they come to where Kuju is with the TARDIS. And Ian's wearing like, a new outfit that I really like. <laughs> <laughs> his, his fashion was much better. Right, exactly. Yeah, he's got this cool silk shirt on that has Chinese characters on it. Mm-hmm. And so Ping Cho recognizes Kuju. Ian grabs him. He has him give Ping Cho back her money. And he forces Kuju to tell him that Tagana was the one that paid for the TARDIS. And then Tagana arrives and he starts slicing the air with his sword and being like, come. Yeah, now Tagana's a master of timing. Right. This would be the most dramatic moment for me to make my entrance. (laughs) And that's our cliffhanger. And that brings us to episode seven, Assassin at Peking. So Tagana tells them that he serves no guy, and with the TARDIS, no guy will rule the world. Ian says that only the Doctor can make it work, but Tagana's like, Psh, no guy's got sorcerers. I'll make it mm-hmm. work. And then Tagana moves to attack Ian, but talk about timing. Ling Tao suddenly arrives with a bunch of soldiers. So Tagana is like, oh, these people stole the Khan's property, and I'm here to... Oh, before that, Kuju tries to run, and he gets killed. Yeah, that's the only appropriate end for him. Right. But then, of course, he can't tell anyone anything, so it becomes Ian's word against Tagana's. I love our courier, though, that just keeps showing up. He's pretty awesome. Exactly. (laughs) And Ling Tao remembers them all from Polo's caravan. Ping Chou says, no, Tagana's the one that was actually trying to steal the TARDIS. Ling Tao's like, I don't want any part of this. (laughs) Can't blame him. Yeah. You guys can go to Peking, and it can be decided there. I've been using the word Peking because that's what they say in the show. That's historically inaccurate because at this point it wasn't called Peking. It's weird because this serial makes a weird mishmash. Some terms like Cathay are historical terms, but then other Mm -hmm. things like Peking are modern ones. Maybe it was just because people are more familiar with it. Yeah, I mean, that's probably it. But yeah, at this point in time, Peking was apparently called Konbalik. Yeah, nobody would have known that. Right, (laughs) exactly. And so, yeah, then we go to the doctor playing Batgammon. Oh, yeah, he's totally made a new best friend right here. (laughs) I've never played Batgammon. Their conversation was cracking me up. Yeah, because they're talking about, like, you know, so the doctor is apparently, like, a way better player. 
And so they talk about all the things that the doctor has won because the, the con is a gambler. So the doctors won 35 elephants with ceremonial bridles, trappings, brocades, and pavilions, 4,000 white stallions, 25 tigers, the sacred tooth of Buddha, and all the commerce from Burma for one year. It sounds like listening to the song Prince Ali from yeah. Aladdin and listening to the genie like recite all of his things. Like At this point, the doctor owns like half the kingdom. Right, yeah, that's what the con's saying. It's, he owns half of Asia now. But then Khan's wife shows up, and this is another funny little scene. Oh my gosh, the Khan's like, let's hide. Yeah. He's <laughs> She's like, you're not gambling, are you? <laughs> and he's just, he's just so terrified of her. And it's so funny because, again, you expect the Khan to be this scary figure, but he's like this henpecked husband. And I just think that's hilarious. Mm-hmm. And then he says, like, when she leaves, he's like, I wish it was more like Genghis. <laughs> <laughs> So then they decide, because the doctor, of course, he's been playing the long game of playing for a while, and then he's like, okay, let's up the stakes a little bit. He's like, I'll put all my winnings against the TARDIS. And at first, the con doesn't like that, because he's like, oh, no, that's the present that Marco got for me, and I still haven't even seen it. He's like, come on, do something else. Like, how about the island of Sumatra? (laughs) And the doctor's like, no, 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 let's let's play for the TARDIS. And so the con eventually agrees, because the doctor's offering everything that he won against that. Mm-hmm. And then Polo comes in and the Khan's telling him, or well, he tells the Khan that Tagana has arrived and the Khan tells Polo about how he and the doctor have been playing, that the doctor owns half of Asia now, but now they're playing for the TARDIS and then Polo's upset because that undermines his gift, obviously. Yeah, and I get it. Polo wants to go home. Yeah. I, that, that was his thing. However... I was like, don't you get it? Once you gift it, it's no longer yours. You have gifted it. You fulfilled your thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, after that, it's the cons to do with as he pleases. Right. And well, that's what Barbara basically says. She's like, hey, I mean, this would be the best case scenario. If the doctor wins it, you've already given it to the con. You've made your gesture and then we can have it back. And so then it's great. Or so it would have been great. Right, right. If it worked out that way. Because it doesn't. Right. (laughs) Yeah, and so then everybody, you know, like, she and Barbara are talking, and it's like, then everybody will be happy, and then Susan's like, well, except for Ping Chow. Yeah. Then it's like, oh, yeah, she still has to marry an old dude. I don't know, maybe some time-traveling slackers from the future will come and rescue her from the old dude. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I just had a Bill and Ted flashback when I said old dude. (laughs) She is technically a princess. (laughs) There is that, yes. So that Marco says their husband has arrived and that they're going to have a banquet that evening with 6,000 people in his honor. So again, you know, sort of mentioning that he's really important. And then Ling Tao arrives and informs everyone that Tagana has accused Ian and Ping Cho of stealing the TARDIS. And then again, with timing, the doctor shows up right on top of that and says that he lost that final game with the con. So he was left with nothing other than some money. Yeah, one single piece of paper money. Right. Well, we don't know. It could be like the equivalent of a a, a million dollar bill or something. (laughs) But yeah, the con just gave him a consolation prize. So Polo's listening to Ian, and Ian's basically telling him what Tagana said. And unfortunately, though nobody, you know, Ling Tao didn't hear anything, and Ping Cho's going to be taken by her husband before there's like the official trial for Ian. So -hmm. there's nobody really to back up what Ian said. And so it will be Ian's word against Tagana's. 
which is bad for Ian because Tagano's an official ambassador. So then we cut to the Kublai Khan and Tagano looking at the TARDIS. And Tagana's in full, I'm going to butter him up mode. Oh, he's spouting some racist stuff too. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, first it starts with the con being like, well, Ping Cho's being excused from this. And Tagana's like, oh, you are so wise, my lord. Her crimes were committed under the influence of others. And that's when the con's like, what do you mean, crimes? Uh, I haven't heard of anything else. And then Tagana's like, what? They were trying to steal this thing, like, all the time. Like, didn't Polo tell you? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that's when he goes into, like, because uh, the Khan's like, well, Polo's always served us well. And he's like, but doesn't one's loyalty lie with one's own kind? Oh, that got me. I was like, really? Yeah. And so when Polo arrives, the Khan's basically grilling him on why didn't you enforce our laws? And why didn't you kill these people when they tried to steal the stuff? And Marco was basically like, well, I felt sorry for them because here I took their, you know, took their thing that was their possession. And Tagana's just jumping in like, you took it under the Khan's name. I can't keep quiet about this. And Marco was basically like, look, I did this all. It was selfishly motivated. And so I felt bad about it. And Tagana's like, you wanted to use this to get the Khan to let you go. And he's basically every time Marco's trying to explain things and make it seem like this is the reason why gotta just jumping in with another thing and the con says that his gift failed because he won with hardest and backgammon so marco giving it to him doesn't really count for anything and then he tells him we'll bring me the key after the banquet mm-hmm. but we do see that the con is kind of smart enough to see what the is doing because he says we'll be on your guard against you because i can tell you have the power of persuasion yeah at least there's that right and then we get a scene where Ping Cho comes in and the Khan and his wife are weeping and because the guy that she was going to marry is dead. Maybe he got poisoned. Sorry, maybe that was, maybe that was where the poison went. I don't know. <laughs> well, this is what's crazy to me. This is actually a real thing. He drank uh, Quicksilver, which is another name for Mercury. Yeah. And this is actually historically accurate. People would do this in ancient China. Because they thought it was an elixir of eternal life. People are so weird. And it's like, but if everyone who's tried this elixir before died, why do you keep drinking it? (laughs) Well, it's a form of eternal life, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, they see that Ping Cho isn't crying at all. And (laughs) the Khan's like, it's too much, honey. Like talking to his wife, like she's not crying. And so then they just stop. And Ping Cho's like, how can I weep for a husband that I never met? Right. She's like, I weep for the death of an old man, an old man, but I'm not sad because how could I weep for the death of someone I never knew? Mm -hmm. And so then they offered to let her stay at the palace. I thought this was interesting. They were like, do you want to go home? Because we can get you home. And she's like, actually, I think I'll stay. And I'm sitting here in my head going, she should totally hook up with that courier. It's funny that you mentioned that because... So, like I mentioned before, um, you know, these stories were novelized, and this one, and sometimes because the writer of the original story either didn't have time or wasn't alive or whatever, someone else actually writes the novel version. But this one was written by the author of the television script. Uh huh. So, in the novel version, that's exactly what happened. Woo! Yeah. Ling Tao and Ping Cho get married. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh it makes me so happy because and then there's a lot more foreshadowing in the novel version where they're like they're kind of looking at each other when he first shows up but you can tell there's sort of like an attraction there and everything no 
So the Khan tells Marco that he needs to get the TARDIS key. And Marco suggests, well, if you're going to go in the TARDIS, you should have the doctor as well. And the Khan says, okay, well, I'm going to meet with Tagana next. And then after that, bring the key and the doctor. And when Marco's leaving the room, he passes Tagana on the way to his meeting with the Khan. And he says, I underestimated you, Tagana. And Tagana says, no, you overestimated yourself. Because Tagana's just an evil snake. Mm-hmm. So the TARDIS crew, they're talking about what's been going on. And so now that they understand that no guy is at Shang 2, they realize that part of what Tagana was trying to do was to delay the trip so that he would arrive at about the same time no guy got all his forces to Karakorum. And so then they figure out, well, then Tagana must be here to assassinate the Khan so that no guy can sweep in during the confusion. And Ian overpowers the guard. Oh, by the way, did you notice that they did that in the same way that they overpowered a Dalek? <laughs> they like hid on either side of the door they were ready to overpower and then one of them calls out for help yeah no that's valid hey whatever works right i mean it already worked against the doll like why shouldn't it work against a mongol that's right and they i realized that they've only been on adventures a short time but they've had to make a crap load of escape plans during these adventures yeah yeah they're getting good at it <laughs> obviously so yeah they get out of the room because they've overpowered the guard and then they run into marco marco's freaking out he's telling them to get back to the room like ian you know ian's got to get back in the room because he's supposed to be kept under house arrest or some equivalent Mm -hmm. and they're trying to convince marco that tagana is here to assassinate the khan and while they're trying to convince marco ling tao shows up and he says that no guy's army is marching on peking And that's when Marco realizes that, okay, they're right. That must be what Tagana's here for. It took an army marching (laughs) on them to get Marco to finally believe. Yeah, the part that I don't understand at all is why is the Khan not guarded? Yeah, that also worries me. He's the Khan. It's like his court should have guards just there, standing there. I mean, I get that maybe the thought would have been that Tagana might have been able to stab him really quickly before the guards could get to him or whatever. But we find out that because nobody actually moves on Tagana when he draws his sword, there must be no guards in that room. It's in the vizier's job description, right? Under right. provide yeah. royal advice, throw yourself in front of the Khan. Right, because that's what happened is, is Tagana, he's talking with the Khan. And then he basically, you know, he takes out his sword to stab him, but then the vizier jumps in the way, which is why he doesn't get in the killing blow. And by that point, Marco has shown up in the room. And this is the other interesting thing. You know, we talked last time about how this is almost like it's Marco, the Marco Polo show, guest starring the doctor and his friends. (laughs) Right. And he's the one that gets to have the sword fight at the end. It normally would be Ian's job as the young heroic type to be the one who gets the major action sequence. But in this one, it's Marco. And again, I wish that we could see this. They did have several photos of them with their swords and fighting and everything. Marco disarms Tagana and the guard. Then the guards show up in the room. I don't know, again, what were they doing? I get that he's an ambassador or whatever, but you'd think just to be safe, you'd want to have a couple of guards in the Khan's room or at least have him give up his sword to enter the throne room. You would have thought. private meeting something but yeah rather than be captured though tagana just jumps on one of the spears that the guards have and so he kills himself 
it like escalated quickly and then it was over. Yeah. Just really <laughs> over fast. Uh-huh. But then Marco, he's just done with all the craziness when the doctor's around. He just like hands him the key and it's just like, go. <laughs> just go. And so Susan says goodbye to Ping Cho really quickly. They all rush in. TARDIS takes off. And then Marco apologizes to the Khan. And the Khan says, eh, it's okay. He would have won it back at Badgammon eventually. <laughs> Which I thought was great. And so then he says, are you going to talk about this when you get home? And Marco says, there's no way anyone would believe this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Which explains why it's not in the book which I thought was cute. Mm -hmm. And apparently on his deathbed, Marco Polo said, because the church tried to get him to recant because people like accused him of lying like through the whole rest of his life. And he said, basically, he said, I haven't even told half the things that I saw. Yeah. So maybe it was the TARDIS. Maybe. <laughs> but man, that episode felt like it ended so abruptly. Yeah, it's definitely different. That's something that the novel changes also, where they actually get like a send-off. The con gives them like a, you know, you are these great, wonderful people who have helped the throne and, you know, everything kind of thing. I mean, instead, we're left not knowing for sure, because uh, when I watched it, I hadn't been aware of the novelization. Ping Cho's just hanging out for some reason. Mm. There's an army marching on them. We're going to sneak you out real quick. Right. And I'm like, okay. Well, that's where you need to read books to know what <laughs> happened. Yes, but I can't read them until after I've like watched or listened to the episode. <laughs> then I have to get a hold of the books. Uh, well, no, I was just talking about more about like history. Like you can read some history about you know what happened. Kublai Khan did defeat No Guy. Doesn't help me about Ping Cho. <laughs> well, yeah, I wouldn't tell you about Ping Cho. No, and Marco does get to go home three years later. Right, three years. Yeah, he leaves in twelve ninety two and does eventually get home. And like I say, like for the rest of his life, he was telling people about Asia and people didn't believe him, called him a liar. Yeah. So ups and downs, because then other, like his book was popular, apparently, because it got copied, like lots of people got hold of it. But then apparently even the copyists were making up bits of it. So <laughs> who knows how much of it is what he really said and whatever. Because there are some things like he mentions unicorns. And so mm -hmm. people are like, oh, well, you know, this is nonsense. But when you read the description of what he calls a unicorn, he's talking about a rhino. It makes sense. Right. He had no word for a rhino. Right. And so he calls it a unicorn because, hey, it's got this big horn on its nose. Four-legged beast with a horn on its head. Right. But he describes it as being like an elephant in size and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, he's talking, yeah, I mean, he calls it a unicorn because that's just the only, that's the closest word he has to this thing. Right. So some things are like that, but then there's other things that are in the versions that we've gotten that are definitely not true. But again, it, we don't know if those are things that somebody added to what he said, or if those were just claims that he made, or if they're things that he heard about, mm -hmm. like tall tales in Asia, and then he just passed them on as if they were fact. I mean, who was going to know, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so they apparently did an effect. And it's because it's in the camera script, and that's the only reason why we know it, is that we cut to seeing the TARDIS, like the people inside the TARDIS, but superimposed over like a star field as they recede into the distance. Nice. So they almost kind of, because this one doesn't link to the next story either. Until now, each story linked to the next story, and we got a cliffhanger into the next story also. So this almost feels like it's an end of a block. I had wondered about that. Yeah. 
because there's no pickup for the next story and we do get that thing of them just receding into space as an effect Oh, and another uh, interesting thing about this one is that Disney actually approached the BBC to make a movie based on this. Really? Yeah. I guess they turned them down because they were more interested in how popular the Daleks were getting. What ends up happening is that the BBC ends up licensing the Doctor Who film rights to a company called Amicus which is like a B-movie studio, which I'm like, God, you passed up Disney for this. Instead of Disney? (laughs) But the reason why is they were interested in making movies based on the Dalek stories. Okay. And so there actually were two movies made in the 60s starring Peter Cushing as Doctor Who, not the Doctor, as Doctor Who. And don't get me wrong, I love Peter Cushing, but how terrible were these movies? They're bad. Okay. They're really bad. Okay. (laughs) I mean, you can watch them. I mean, they're totally out of continuity. Basically, in these movies, the doctor is just a crazy, zany human scientist who is like, you know, absent-minded professor type. And he builds the TARDIS, which is just a one-room thing in the movie version. But it is a police box on the outside. You go inside, it's just this one room. And they make it so that Susan is younger. She's nine. And she's his granddaughter, but also Barbara is his granddaughter, and she's like 18. And Ian is her boyfriend. It sounds like a comparison of the last Airbender movie, which should never, ever be watched by anybody, (laughs) to Avatar, the last Airbender, the cartoon. Uh, I I just started watching the cartoon with my daughter because she really likes it. And I'm joking that when we finish it, we'll watch the movie just so that we can riff it. I actually have the riff tracks if you want to watch it with the riff track. (laughs) It's the only way I've seen the movie. It's unbearable otherwise. Yeah. You know, I know nothing about it. I mean, I know what people say. I mean, I know people say, like, the movie is awful and it's no good, but I've never seen it, so I have no basis for anything about it. I look forward to hearing what you have to say. Okay. (laughs) But yeah, so they make a movie, and I mean, it basically is the story of that first Dalek story, but it's really shortened. It's like 80 minutes or something. Like It was a seven-parter in the TV, and it's like an 80-minute movie. It's... You would think as a movie, they would feel like they could make it even darker and grittier, but no. You remember the Thal that scared and then he like cuts the rope to die? Yeah. They change that scene so that when he cuts the rope, there's a ledge that he falls down to. So he's okay. Uh, not okay. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, Barbara's just another granddaughter of the doctor who's just this crazy scientist type. And Ian is her boyfriend and it's, they're supposed to be on a date. But when she shows him the TARDIS as this new invention her grandfather has made, he accidentally presses a button, and that's why they end up going to Scarrow and have the whole adventure and everything. And it's just really kind of goofy, and it's just not very good. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. And then they adapted the second Dalek story also, which we haven't gotten to on the TV, but they turned that into a movie too. So yeah, I like Peter Cushing too, but this is definitely not his best work. Okay. Which is why I don't even consider, I mean, other podcasts that I've listened to that do these reviews of the stories, they'll do like, oh, now we're going to do a special and do the movies. I don't even want to watch the movies again. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen them before. And of all of Doctor Who, it's, yeah, these are things I can safely ignore. Well, I mean, considering that they apparently don't fall in the continuity properly, I'm cool with skipping them. Yeah, it doesn't even have the actual actors. Right. So uh, how did you feel about the development of our main cast in this one? 
I really liked how Susan seemed to grow as a person a bit. Mm -hmm. And I love how Barbara just cemented herself more as the intelligent and intelligent and wily one. Like she is what the doctor and Ian wish they could be combined. (laughs) Okay. What? You're laughing at that. Even combined, man. Like the doctor is really smart, but he does not, he is not wise. Not really. And Ian, Ian's, Ian can be okay. He's got a bit of the ego too that allows him to like brush people off. But if they could like combine themselves, maybe, maybe they'd be a fraction of what Barbara is Mm -hmm. because she's got it. She's observant. She's intelligent. She puts these things together. And even when people are ignoring her, she's like, cool, I'm going to go take this into my own hands. I love that about her. The doctor, the first half of the arc, I wasn't so impressed with him. Mm-hmm. But the second half, I loved it when he became friends with the con because that just made my day. I don't know why, but that was my favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> so we talked last time about how this one wasn't sitting too well with you. and We weren't really sure about why that was. But how do you feel about it, watching it as a whole? I feel a little bit better. The writing, like some of the lines, the dialogue are fantastic. Yeah. But I feel like it dragged in places where it didn't need to drag out. And Mm -hmm. they sped through other places where they could have, like the fights and stuff. I realize we can't see them, but I'm assuming that they didn't shorten the audio just because we can't see it. Those fights were so quick. Yeah, the recons don't do that. Sometimes when the BBC will put something on a DVD of here's a reconstruction of missing episodes or whatever, they'll shorten it because they feel like they don't want to bore people. But yeah, the fan reconstructions, the fans always go for authenticity. See, I felt like they could have expanded some of that stuff, especially the last part of the episode when they're escaping. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was just left hanging with several things. I liked the writing. I liked the dialogue. I felt like some of the story was missing something for me. That's fair. I mean, this one's a little weird. I mean, you can tell that Lucarati, because he's researched Marco Polo's life so well, is focusing on him. And it seems our main cast is almost secondary characters within their own show. Mm -hmm. The Doctor gets really shortchanged in this one, I feel like. Because it's not until those last two episodes when Kublai Khan appears and then they become friends that he really has anything to do. Right. It's just, oh, I got to sneak into the TARDIS and fix it. I'm going to yell at Polo a little bit. (laughs) You know, that's like the whole part. But once he does show, like once once the doctor does come to the forefront, suddenly it's great. But yeah, he's kind of shortchanged in this one. And Ian, as much as he gets to be like, oh, let's fight off bandits together and stuff like that. I mean, that's just in one episode. And even Ian doesn't get to do a whole lot in this one. So, I mean, I like the history of it. And I like the writing. Like you said, like, I think like John Lucarati is probably, well, he is one of the best dialogue writers that they have in this early part of the show. And there are so many very good lines in it. But I think really Susan comes off the best Mm -hmm. just because she and Ping Cho get to play off each other and we get to have Susan being that sort of modern influence on Ping Cho and letting Ping Cho assert herself a little bit and getting that whole relationship. Because like you said, Barbara's just kind of stuck in the, I see all this stuff, I'm really shrewd and I understand it, but nothing really moves the plot forward that she's doing. Mm -hmm. It makes me so sad. Right. She gets the one thing of she gets to see Tagada and Akamet working together, which gives them a clue later on that, okay, this bandit raid was Tagana's doing, but that's it. So, yeah, it's kind of weird from that standpoint. 
I don't think they're ever going to be sidelined like this again. I don't recall that happening again, but it is kind of weird that that happened and kind of early in the show. Like I said before, William Russell, who plays Ian, was so mad that the picture that got put on the Radio Times was of the Doctor, Tagana, and Marco. I can't blame him. Yeah. So at the end of the day, what do you think of this one? What do you give it as a rating? You mean these particular three or the whole arc? Yeah, let's just do the whole... I mean, I know we broke it up that way, but just do the whole arc. I'll give the whole arc a seven. Okay. A good solid seven. The dragginess and the speeding, I can forgive, if only because there was some really good dialogue in there. Yeah, I mean, it's... I understand that they probably had that sort of abrupt ending with them just running off into the TARDIS because they were pressed for time. But then, like you said, there are other things they could have shortened to give them more time at the end, which they didn't. Right. Yeah, no, it's cool. We can tell a 15-minute story about Aladdin, but we're going <laughs> to escape in 20 seconds. Uh, actually, oh, funny enough, they were going to cut that thing with Ping Cho telling that story because of the time factor, and she actually fought to keep it in. I can't blame her. She was kind of, it's, it's like a big important thing for her. Right, yeah. For her as an actress, that was a big deal because this was her first television work. She had done some theater. But this was important to her to have. I want my showcase, right? (laughs) Like I said, I mean, I gave it, when I did my own reviews like five or six years ago, I give this one a nine out of 10. I don't know if it's just because I'm in a different mood watching it now. I'm not giving it quite as high of a rating this time. I think a seven like you gave it is fair, actually. Yeah, wow. Because, yeah, I mean, it isn't, it's well-written. That whole factor of Marco being the main character and everyone else just being along for the ride struck me a lot more this time. I wasn't engaged in the story, and that was my big problem. Yeah, we'll see about next time. I still am really excited that you told me about Ping Cho in the novel because I, that just made my that made the entire day. Like if yeah. that if if I was to include that bit of information in my rating, it immediately goes up to an eight, right? There. Oh. <laughs> The thing is, like, for me, the, for these missing ones, the novels were my way of knowing their stories when I was a kid. Because even though all the different stories were novelized, except for a few, I didn't care about the ones I'd seen. I cared less. I mean, I do have a lot of books. I ended up picking up books of ones that I had seen because this is before DVDs and everything. So it was a way to see a story again that I might not ever see again. So I would sometimes pick up ones from other. But I was focusing mainly on the books for ones that I didn't see. And so the book is my primary way of knowing this story. When I watched the reconstruction for the first time, I may have been like 15, 20 years ago, but I had read the book as like a little kid, like of seven or eight. So it always surprises me when I watch the reconstruction. I'm like, wait a minute, that's not the way I remember it. And I'm like, oh, that's right. That's because that's what was in the book. See, I'd actually be interested in reading the book to find out if it makes me feel more connected to the story. Yeah, it's got several differences. There's less of the idea of Marco as the main character and the doctor's got more to do. And so there's several tweaks that he put into it from how he did the TV story. And don't ask me why I got latched on to Ping Cho and the courier. I don't, I have no clue. I just (laughs) wanted her to be happy. And for some reason, just looking at him and the still photos and the sound of his voice is like, she'd be happy with him. Yeah. Well, he does get to escort her back to her room after she has the meeting with the con when they tell her that the husband is dead. He just seemed nice and genuine and sincere, and he wasn't going to take any sides. He was right. going to let everything be heard, a- heard out on the open in front of the con. Mm-hmm. I can appreciate that. Yep. So, yeah, 
Next time we actually have a story by the writer of the first Dalek story. Ooh. But it is not a Dalek story. Aw. <laughs> it's called The Keys of Marinus. And yeah, what happened was because of all the craziness with the beginning of the show and that they weren't sure if they were going to be allowed to do all the episodes and everything, they didn't have scripts prepared. They had a few people, like a few irons in the fire, but those fell through. And so they were like, we need someone who can do this quickly. And so because the Daleks had been popular and because Terry Nation had gotten his scripts out in a week, <laughs> they were like, hey, you do scripts really fast. Can you do another story? <laughs> and so, yeah, that's the genesis of this next one. And so, yeah, we'll have that to go into next time. And that one, it does exist, all six episodes. <laughs> Woo! So we're going to split it up three and three? No, no, no. Only if it's more than six do I want to split it up. Okay, I wasn't sure. So I'm preparing myself for all six episodes. Right, yeah. And this one does exist, so it's all on BritBox, no reconstructions, anything like that. Awesome. And yeah, because basically you'll find uh, as we go on that four and six parters end up becoming the standard like lengths. Very few stories are less than four or more than six. Okay. So I just feel like, yeah, so since that's kind of a standard length, we'll make that like our max and anything that goes beyond that, then we can uh, split it up. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, for my uh, book plug this time, I am going to mention A History by Lance Parkin. And it's actually uh, sort of like a republishing. And in the 90s, he did a book called Doctor Who, The History of the Universe. And he basically took every book, all the original Doctor Who books, as well as all the TV stories, and he tried to create a timeline within the universe. Because not every story gives a year or everything. So it's like, okay, based on this evidence, this is the year that this story happens. And since then, in more recent times, it's been republished as A History. It's just called Doctor Who A History. I think it's because it's unauthorized. The first one was actually licensed and printed by the official publishing company that had the BBC license for Doctor Who. So this is now unofficial, but he's now concluding everything. So it's not just the TV stories and the books. He's also including all of the audiobooks and audio adventures, all of the comic books. It is a huge, huge book. In fact, he broke it up into three volumes with this latest version. Because oh, wow. there's always more content for Doctor Who, right? I mean, the audios are going on constantly. There's comics being published constantly. The books are not as much anymore, although there still are some books published. And the TV series is still releasing new seasons. So it's a three-volume set that basically goes into, if you really want to understand, how does this all lay out? Like, when does this happen with respect to this other story and stuff like that? If you get into that level of just wanting to understand the Doctor Who universe, this is the book for you. I mean, I might, I might have to check it out when we're done. I am that person who collects things like Star Trek stellar cartography maps. Mm. I like that just because no, I don't always agree with it, but I always like that he gives a rationale based on... Because a lot of times, like, stories set in the future or whatever, a lot of times they don't have years. They never say, like, we're in the year 2501 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like, okay... What is your rationale for saying that this one happens before this one? How do you think this story relates to that one? And it's just kind of interesting to me to sort of get the 
And there are a few stories. Like at the end, he has like a sort of appendix of these stories are so obscure as far as where they're set. I cannot place these anywhere. Like the Edge of Destruction, which we just did, is one Mm -hmm. that he puts there because they say that they're at the formation of a solar system. Absolutely no idea what solar system could be Earth, could be anywhere. No way to give a year to this one. So this goes in that pile. Hmm. But there's only a handful that he puts there. He has put a date for just about every story that's ever been made for Doctor Who. So props to him. Nice. So do you have anything that you want to plug, Juliet? Yeah, actually. I finished my second video game of the year, which is incredible for me because I don't finish video games ever. I suck at them so much. Mm. I love playing. But I finished Jedi Fallen Order. So if you all get a chance, highly recommend playing it through because the storyline is fantastic and worth sticking with. And also join me on Zombies Run and run with me from zombies. That sounds so depressing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah, very cool. One of these days, I'd love to play video games again when I have the time. Yeah, time is kind of important. (laughs) Also, pick video games that don't tear your heart out. I'm currently playing The Last of Us, the first Mm. one. And I die constantly, and it is brutal. Not just the dying, but the storyline is awful. It's so sad. Yeah, I've heard about that one. Uh, Again, I haven't played anything regularly since the Super Nintendo days. That's pretty sad. Yeah, I played, uh, like, you know, when I was in college, my friends had GameCube, and, you know, I played several games on the GameCube and played those to completion, but that's probably the last era where I really played anything to completion. It's oddly relaxing when I can find the time. Like, I got very excited when I finished Final Fantasy VII Remake, so... Very nice. Yeah, other than the fact that, you know, the 42 cast, I can always plug that. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, we have to plug that one. That's yeah, right, right. Kind of we important. have to plug that one, yes. But other than that, I don't really have uh, anything else to plug at this time. We are boring people in quarantine. That's right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know what we could plug? Watch Avatar The Last Airbender on Netflix. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, yeah. Watch Avatar The Last Airbender. I mean, I'm pretty early on in it, and it has not... I mean, it's fine, but it hasn't grabbed me yet. Is This is like the great... Because my daughter is like, this is the greatest show of all time. And I'm like, okay. I mean, I'm huge. Like, to me, like, the greatest cartoon of all time is Gargoyles. Okay. Even the horrible third season. Chronicles of Goliath. Yeah, I mean, it's not as good, right? But I mean, like, it's still part of Gargoyles. Stick with Avatar. I think if you look <laughs> like Gargoyles, you're going to really appreciate Avatar. Okay, no, and I'm fine with that. I mean, my daughter said the first season is not as good as the later season. So, you I mean, I'm fine with that. I'm also a huge Babylon 5 fan. But again, the first season is not <laughs> particularly good. It's just seasons two through four are so wonderful that it kind of, you know, makes... Okay, season one wasn't that great. You know, it doesn't matter as much. Right. So yeah, watch Avatar. Yep. (laughs) Okay. Well, Juliet, it has been great talking to you. It's definitely been a fun evening. All right. So this has been Nathan. And this is Juliet. (laughs) And this has been Time Streams. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Time Streams, a subsidiary of the 42Cast podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, email us at everything at 42cast.com. Ending music is Voltaic by Kevin McLeod and licensed by a Creative Commons attribution license. <laughs>